Good morning, saints. If you would take your Bibles and open to Revelation chapter 7. I was a little nervous as I was sitting down looking at the hype of that microphone over there. I was wondering how I was going to make it work at my home assembly. We have a separate microphone on the side I just bring over when I'm ready to go on. And I don't have to mess with anybody else's microphone. But this works out nicely, so I think we'll be all right. Um, I want to thank you all for the invitation to be with you all. It is my uh, privilege, especially as I've been listening to the sermons that the men of previous weeks have delivered. It's been a real blessing to me, an encouragement to hear the thoughts from the Word of God. It is a privilege to be among you all as a congregation who are a regular source of encouragement to me, to be in the presence of men who serve as uh, great examples for me. Um, but I should confess to you who I'm most intimidated by this morning. Not any of the men who have given their sermons already, uh, but my former Sunday school teacher, Miss Jan. Um, so... If I avoid direct eye contact, it's only because of flashbacks of forgotten memory verses, and uh, you'll have to forgive me. So let's begin. You're in Revelation chapter 7, but listen carefully as I read two verses from Luke's gospel. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Our Father, we thank you that this morning we have the opportunity to go to your word. We thank you that there we find what you have prepared for us. You have prepared these things thousands of years ago, and you have prepared this moment for us this morning. As we enter into this new year, help us to hear afresh the things which have sustained the saints generation after generation. Help us receive the things which are placed here for us so that as we go forth into the upcoming days, we might live in proper obedience and service to you, Father. Father, we would see the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory this morning. Help us not to be distracted by the things that seek to grab our attention or to dominate our thoughts, but Jesus Christ and him alone. Father, we thank you and commit these things to you in the precious name of our Lord Jesus. Revelation chapter 7 is one of my favorite chapters of Scripture and certainly of the book of Revelation. And as a way of getting into the flow of what has been covered already, let me give you my ten favorite sentences in this series so far. It's not a New Year's top 10 list. It's just because there have been 10 lessons so far. Let me give you the things that have stood out to me. From the first, what stood out to me was the prayer from our brother. He said, we thank you that it is Jesus Christ who is being revealed and who is the revealer. The introduction to the second sermon we're not afraid of Jesus, are we? So why should we be afraid of this book? That was a comfort to me in preparation. The third, 
if we can get a clear picture, a snapshot, as it were, of the Lord Jesus, that would change our lives. Number four, the Lord Jesus has overcome the world on the cross with the crown of thorns so that we can overcome. Number five, he is the rewarder and the reward. Number six, an important question. Do you have eyes for the eternal and sight to see the spiritual? Number seven, it's necessary once in a while to check your spiritual temperature. These next three, it's almost as though they were thinking the same thoughts or though there was someone within them giving them these similar thoughts. Number eight, there is a throne and I know the throne sitter. Looking for our brother. I'll find him. Number nine, he is seated there on the throne and there is no competition for him. And lastly, God is still in control. God is still on the throne. What fantastic encouragement. What wonderful thoughts. It's been a true privilege for me as I've listened to the things that have been said before. And now we come here to Revelation chapter 7. It is an important moment because many things change in this chapter as we've been following the flow of the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me give you briefly a theological outline. We've been working through this book with the divisions of the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will shortly take place. That is, of course, the grammar, the syntax, all the things that John has put into the book. But if we understand all that John is alluding to, the things of the previous books of the New Testament and of the Old Testament, there are certain things that John is developing. This is what we normally refer to as biblical theology. That's what theologians call it, and it's a little bit of a misleading term. It sounds like, oh, well, that's good theology. That's biblical theology. The Lord Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. That's good biblical theology. That's not what theologians mean. When they say biblical theology, they mean the development of certain topics of revelation through time. There are some things that God began to reveal in Genesis that he continues to reveal throughout Scripture and finally brings to a climax in the book of the Revelation. And that is what we mean when we say biblical theology. It is the development of certain doctrines over time. And here, in the book of Revelation, it is possible to divide the book according to biblical theology. But what I've done at Fort Lauderdale is avoid that term. We just refer to it as the big story theology. The big story. Because there are many authors of Scripture, there are many books of Scripture, but they all work together to tell one story. There is one single uh, pattern or trajectory of history. God started in Genesis and he completes in Revelation. There is one thread that runs throughout. So we'll call that the big story theology. Now, when it comes to the big story theology, the book of Revelation has a few verses of introduction and a few verses of conclusion. 
And then chapters 1 to 3 deal with the things of the church. We've studied what the Lord Jesus has to say to the church. Chapters 4 through 20 deal with the cosmos. Deal with the cosmos. This is a word in the Apostle John's vocabulary that means the world. For your notes, you can write down 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. He means it to describe the entire worldly kingdom of darkness aligned against God. When he says the cosmos, the world, it means the rebellious kingdom of darkness. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Now, chapters 4 through 20 of the book of Revelation deal with God's response, his judgment being poured out upon this world, this cosmos. All that has been in existence in rebellion against God is what he is responding to in chapters 4 through 20. In chapter 20 through 22, deal with the creation. That is the last days of the old creation and the first days of the new creation. Now, this is helpful because we are in the middle of God's judgment against rebellious creation, the rebellious cosmos. But chapter 7 begins an intermission. After the heavy and weighty things of chapter 6, the Holy Spirit knew we need the intermission of chapter 7. In fact, let's read chapter 7, but first beginning with the last few verses of chapter 6. We'll begin at verse 12 of chapter 6. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their place. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Now underline this question. For the great day of wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Chapter 7 is the answer to this question. Apart from chapter 7, we would be in a very dark place as this book is unfolding. Now listen as chapter 7 answers the question, who is able to stand? After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice 
to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. And from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. And from the tribe of Levi, 12,000. And from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. And from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all the tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne of God and worshipped, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. This is a blessed rest from what we heard in chapter 6. If chapter 6 went directly into the things of chapter 8, I do not think any of us could endure. That is why chapter 6 ends with who is able to stand. That word stand is found all over scripture. Here in this context, it means endure. In the context of Revelation, as we hear numerous times, the idea is overcome. Who is able to overcome But here, it's not overcome the adversaries of God. It is overcome or endure the judgment of God himself. Who? 
who is able to endure the wrath of God poured out against sin? And chapter 7 introduces us to three categories of beings. Three categories, and we'll name them as we begin our investigation. The first is the angels. Verses 1, 2, and 3 are concerning the angels. Verses 4 through 8 are concerning the sealed. And 9 through 17 are the clothed. There are the angels, there are the sealed, and there are the clothed. Now, just in the naming, you can see there is something of a differentiation between the first and then the second two. The first is they are angels. It's just their name. It's what they are. But the next two groups are named for something. These are passive verbs. This is something that's done to them. They are sealed and they are clothed. These two groups that are to come are the answer to the question at the end of chapter 6. But before we get to them and understand the answer, let me show you why John includes these first three verses. Of course, it's what the Lord revealed to him, but what function are these first three verses playing here? Now, they are angels, but they do something different here that we haven't seen yet in the book of the Revelation. In the book of the Revelation, as we've encountered the angels up to this point, they have been worshiping before God. They have been singing the praises of God. It is all things that we would enjoy doing ourselves, things that we would want to do. But here in chapter 7, angels for the first time are doing something else, something we wouldn't want to do. In fact, verse 3, or in verse 2, it says, to the angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. This is the first time we are hearing of angels doing something undesirable, something we wouldn't want to participate in. And this is a major development in what we were calling biblical theology or the big story of the Bible. John includes here what he sees in the first three verses as has been developing even since Genesis. Let me name a few things along the way for you. This is angels as ministers of judgment. And we've seen numerous times throughout Scripture where God sends angels as ministers of his judgment. Angels are present only at specific times of human history. We read of them throughout Scripture, but as we trace the unfolding of history, they seem to show up at pretty significant transition points of history. It is when a major event is happening. We know our Bible begins in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, with the words, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But then verse 2 says, And the earth was void and without form. After verse 1 says, God created the heavens and the earth, verse 2 points our direction to earth, and we remain with earth for the rest of scriptures until we get to Revelation. Angels aren't a big part, a big concern of what's going on in scripture. And so when they show up, these heavenly beings, these heavenly creatures, intruding into the earthly sphere, something significant is going on. God is dealing with heavenly realities and earthly realities. He is the God and creator of both heaven and earth. But when we see angels intrude into human history, there are significant things taking place. One place we've noticed them is in Genesis chapter 6. 
In Genesis chapter 6, we read from chapter 4 this morning, after Adam and his descendants multiply, chapter 6 says, and men begin to multiply on the face of the earth. And we read about this strange race of people called the Nephilim. Now, it's probably not a good habit to uh, go to a difficult portion of Scripture in order to make sense of a difficult book of Scripture. But the principle I'm trying to identify here is that that is a period of history in which the trajectory of human, uh, the course of human events is developing. Something is happening because the things that come is God calls Abraham in the upcoming chapters of Genesis. But before God calls Abraham out of the nations, what needs to happen is the descendants of Adam need to multiply into nations. And at that period, when men are multiplying and spreading over the face of the earth, we see angelic beings enter into history to try and direct the course of these events. These are, of course, not angels in obedience to God, but angels acting in disobedience to God. This is a cosmic, this is a creational sort of warfare and battle that has been taking place since the beginning. When else do we see it? Well, turn with me to Daniel. We, I believe, the very first sermon of this series, we looked at Daniel. We'll go there to chapter 8 to quickly just read a few verses. And in Daniel chapter 8, we see again angels entering into the course of human history. Now, at the beginning in Genesis, it was when nations and humanity was forming here. The transition that's taking place is Israel has failed the task that God has set for them. Let's read Daniel chapter 8, verse 17 and 19. This is Gabriel appearing to Daniel. So he came near to where I was standing And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. In verse 19, he said, Behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. Now here, God is sending angels to his people, Daniel, and to the Jewish people to tell them what he is doing in the course of human events. We see in the ministry of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament of the demons themselves approaching Jesus, and they say, why are you here? Have you come to torment us before the time? The demons, the angelic beings, are aware of God's plan and trajectory for history. And so when we see them enter into the things of Scripture, we understand something cosmic, something important and significant is taking place. And so when John sees them in his vision back in Revelation chapter 7 to where we are returning, he is developing what has started from Genesis. What is taking place here in Revelation chapter 7 is God is again sending his angels into the course of human history because something significant is taking place. And that significant event is the judging of all of humanity. This is the rebellion that has begun in Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11 
we understand is the Tower of Babel. That is where this center section of the book of Revelation is headed. We understand in the upcoming chapters, the great enemy of God is identified as Babylon. This is, of course, the same word. It's our English translations that decide to sometimes say Babel and sometimes say Babylon. But in the original, it is either all Babel or all Babylon. And this rebellion against God at the level of all of humanity and all of creation has reached this point. And in Revelation chapter 7, God sends his angels for a very specific task. And the significance of this task is to remind us of a single lesson. So let's observe what he tells them. First, John sees four angels. And then verse 2, I saw another angel ascending. This angel seems to be already on the earth. John is at Patmos when he sees his visions. And he says, I saw the angel ascending from the rising of the sun. That is from the east. And this angel arises from where Israel would be, from where John's vantage point is. And he says to the other angels who have this mighty power over the earth, it says, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. And he says in verse 3, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees. These are the realities which will be affected in chapter 8. When the trumpets are blown, these are the things which will be judged. And so God sends his angels here in the first three verses of chapter 7 to teach us this principle. That when God sends his judgment, he makes sure to preserve his own. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God. We've heard this word seal previously in the earlier chapters. There it was referring to the seals on the scroll. And of course, the scroll is God's judgment title deed for the earth that he's given to the sun. But here, same word refers to a different object. Those were seals that bind a scroll. This is something like the ring. This is the uh, this is the angel sent by God to seal the servants. It says on their foreheads, a place of prominence to all the angelic beings, to all those who are entrusted with carrying out the judgment of God. They would see certainly and clearly who belongs to the Lord. There will be no mistaking who are God's enemies and who are God's people. God ensures that none of his own will get caught in the crossfire. I'm reminded of that scene, maybe you've seen it in Braveheart, where uh, the king of England is watching the soldiers fight against the, uh, the rebellious Scottish, and he orders his archers to fire. And his lieutenant says, but we'll hit our own men. And he says, fire anyway. He wants to take out the enemies. Our God is not indiscriminate like that. Our God doesn't just send judgment and hit, hope to hit as many as possible. Here, the angels, as they oftentimes enter into human history, here God has given them the specific task to ensure that his own servants are protected. And here we are introduced to the first group. Two answers to the question, who can stand? The first is those who are sealed. Verses 4 through 8 introduce us to the sealed 
of the tribe of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Now, if we had the time, we would pull out from Scripture the numerous times that the twelve tribes or a listing of the sons of Israel are named. One theologian estimates that there's about twenty-five times that the tribes are named together. And he says there are 19 different forms of their listing, whether it's the change of which tribes are included or excluded or the order of the names. There's about 19 different times, and they all serve a different function. The significant thing here in Revelation chapter 7 is it matches none of them. This is different than every other time we've seen it in Scripture. And there is, of course, big story theology developments going on here. But for our concern, the significance of what's taking place here must be understood as an answer to chapter 6. Who can stand? And as God is looking on the earth, we hear the number of those who are sealed. Now you'll notice verse 4, John says, I heard the number. This is the second experiential marker that John is giving us. Verse 1 and verse 2 says, and I saw. The first is of the angels, and he sees the angels. Verse 4 through 8, when it comes to those who are sealed, he hears the number. There's no magic significance to the number 144,000. We know how mathematics works and the 12 times 12 times 1,000, all of that works. But the significance here is of God knowing the number of his own. God is not hoping for certain numbers. God is not working so that he, this many may be saved. He knows the number of those who are his own. And as he sets the angels to mark them out for protection, he knows how many there are. We'll see shortly the those who are clothed to come. But here, what they're marked out for, what they are sealed, is against the judgment of chapter 8 to come. God is unleashing his wrath, and it will be poured out on the whole earth. He marks these out, verses 4 through 8, to be protected from this judgment. We'll be reintroduced to them in chapter 14 of Revelation, but here the significance, the focus is on their number. God has their number. As we enter into the next group, These are the clothed. Verse 9 through 17 stand for those who are the clothed. There is a difference between the group in verse 9 through 17 and the group of verse 4 through 8. We know The first group, the group of four through eight, are those of Israel. Notice some of the contrast between these groups. Verse 9 says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count. The first group is countable. God has their exact number. This second group is uncountable, which no one could count. And they are not just of Israel. They are of every nation and tribe. And peoples and tongues. And here we see them standing before the throne, before the Lamb. 
the group of those who are sealed seem to be located on earth. They are there, present, when the judgment of God is being poured out. This multitude of those who are clothed seem to be taking place in heaven. One more note on those who are the sealed. We shouldn't think that God is there doing accounting or bookkeeping. God isn't interested in the number for the sake of the number. So what we began with in reading from the book of Luke. I had a boss when I worked at Chick-fil-A in uh, California. And he told me, we measure what matters to us. We measure what matters to us. Now, what we're familiar with is uh, you go and you see a long line and uh, you enter into the drive-thru and you're surprised by how quickly everything comes together and they take your order and you kind of zip through. Any other place, it would take about half an hour to get through a line that long. Now, what we would do, we would time and measure every single moment of that. He would send me in the car with a stopwatch. I'd get into line, I'd time how long it took the first person to approach the car. I'd time how long it took them to hand me a menu. I'd time how long it took them to take my order until they took my payment, until they handed me my food, and until I was able to exit the parking lot. Every single moment of the transaction was measured because it mattered. Just, if anyone's keeping track, none of the Chick-fil-A's here are as fast as mine was in California. So... (laughs) There is a reason for measuring because these things matter. Now, when we see God measuring, counting the number of those who are his own, it is because they matter to him. It is not the number that matters to him. It is not that he is trying to fill up some quota to point to the fact of, look how many I can save, or look what I was able to accomplish, look how neat and balanced it is. What are some things in Scripture we see God counting? As we read from Luke, of course, the very hairs on your head are numbered. In the Psalms, we read that even our tears are kept by God. Psalm 56, it is recorded in his book. When we read the number of those who God is saving, he is not recording the number because he is a statistician. He does not care about accounting. He cares about his own. This ought to be a comfort to us when we endure the things that we are presented with the challenges in our own lifetime. If God numbers us who are his own, if God numbers his people, God numbers their tears, God numbers their hairs, we understand there is no reality that we face that is not precious to God. God measures the lost minutes of sleep of faithful parents who get up early and get their children ready for church. God measures the number of tears we shed. I was reminded a few days ago, God measures the number of mangoes that are given in love. 
God doesn't measure for the sake of numbers. God measures because he loves his people. The significance of what's being poured out here as God seals those from Israel is a reminder to us that God pours out his judgment not to accomplish some big cosmic plan, but for the sake of those he loves. The very number is known to him because he knows each that are his own. Now, this last group before our time runs out. We hear something familiar of them that we read in the previous chapter, that they are clothed in white robes. These are those who we read of, those who are martyred, those who are slain because of the word of God. Who can endure? The question at the end of chapter 6, who is able to stand? And here we see a striking thing, that the answer to the question of those who are able to endure God's judgment are those who have fallen victim to the world to the enemies of God. It is a victory in the sight of God to be killed by his enemies. And here when we see those who are clothed, they are those who receive clothing from God. They are the ones who fell to the world, but they are the ones who are able to stand the judgment of God. They carry in their hands something palm branches. Again, there is the development of the theology of palm branches in Scripture. Let's jump to the end of what this points to. This is what the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Boots, was pointing to, the dwelling of God in the midst of his people. The palm branches in the hands of these wonderful believers is their symbolic representation of their experience expectation of the presence of God in their midst. We read verse 10, they cry out with a loud voice saying, and here is one of the great praises of scripture, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Now notice what happens in verse 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne. How many? All, all the angels, numerous places in scripture we read, there are a multitude of angels, there are a myriad of angels, and a great host of angels. Here it says, all the angels were standing around the throne. There is a difference between the songs, what is cried in verse 10, and what the angels say in response. In verse 10, those who were robed those who are clothed saying salvation to our god who sits on the throne and to the lamb these are men these are those who have who have died in the great tribulation because they sing of salvation you see when the angels in verse 12 they they say only amen in response they don't have the experience that those who are clothed have angels don't experience that wonder of salvation. In fact, what's happening here when all the angels are present in verse 11, it's almost as they as if they 
all gather because they want to see. Has God saved them? They know about those who maybe in eternity past or ages past fell from heaven. We read about that in later chapters. But they know nothing of the reality of salvation. They only know about perfect obedience or of rebellion, never of restoration. And so those who are clothed with the white robes, they sing salvation to our God. And the angels, all of the angels, rush in to see what this is about. And they're only able to begin and end their praise with amen. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. They see. There is a significance to what's taking place right here in these verses. It is significant for us, even though these verses are not referring to us, the church today. It is referring to those believers who are saved in the tribulation period. There is a reminder for us here. The reminder here is what Paul was teaching the saints at Ephesus, that the angels long to learn about these things. Paul says, He has seated us in the heavenly places, far above all principalities. God in saving us is demonstrating to the whole created order what he is all about. The angels see him. They see his plans. They see how history unfolds, but they learn the full character of God, not experientially directly, but by observing us. And the reality here, what we are reading about between the judgment of chapter 6 and the judgment of chapter 8 is of the wonder of salvation so that all the angels draw in close so they might see. It is appropriate for us during this intermission, this chapter, to stop and reflect if we have that same wonder. To our salvation. If all the angels of the heavenly sphere draw in close just to hear the songs of the redeemed about salvation, how much wonder does it provoke in us? And the Lord makes sure John catches the significance and passes it along to us. Verse 13. One of the elders answered, saying to me, Those who are clothed in white robes, who are they and where have they come from? John says, my Lord, you know. And he gives the answer. These are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. Now, just some doctrine issues here to uh, put neatly in order. These are not those who are of the church. These are the tribulation saints. But something of the timing here we need to make sense of. Where are these saints? What time period are they existing in? It says here they are the ones who have who come out of the tribulation. There's something of a present tense there. These are the ones who are coming out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes. Now verse 15 tells us their location. For this 
reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. Now, that's the first temporal sort of indicator we have. They serve day and night in his temple. By the end of the book of Revelation, there is no more day and night. There is no more temple. And so, these saints here are at some point before the eternal state, at some point before the end of all things. But then, it says in the end of verse 16, or the end of verse 15 onward, these things that we read of that are at the end. It says, they will hunger no longer, they will thirst no more. The Lamb, verse 17, the center, will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. These are all realities that come at the end. And so just a note on the tenses here that help us to keep these things in their proper order. In verse 15, it says, For this reason they are before the throne and they serve him. So there is a time period between the the breaking of the sixth seal and before the breaking of the seventh seal in chapter 8. Now, this period of the great tribulation that is unfolding is the period in which these saints are saved, in which they receive the redemption of God. And they will be there as a picture to the angelic being and all those who are gathered there of God and his salvation. But then the tense changes in the second half of verse 15. He who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer. All of these things at the remainder of the chapter point to the reality that will become theirs in the age to come. And the significance, the takeaway for us here is that God does not make levels of his redeemed. God does not stratify a lesser salvation to some and a greater salvation to other. The hope The eternal hope they have is the same that awaits us. This is what Paul was addressing in his first letter letter to the Thessalonians. They wondered about those who had fallen asleep, those who had died. Will they miss the rapture? Will they miss out on all that God has prepared for his people? And Paul emphatically tells them, certainly not. This is the same thing that's taking place here. When the question is asked, who can stand, who can endure, one might ask, well, what happens to those who aren't sealed? What happens to those whom God hasn't put the mark on their forehead and kept them safe from the the trumpets and the judgments that are to blow? What happens to those who are not protected? And the answer that's given by the elder to John in verse 13 onward, is that they receive every glory from God. They receive all that God has to give to his people. God is not withholding from you or from any of his people any good that he has to give. What we see here is a God who will give to his people all the goodness and blessing he has to pour out. And so here in the intermission, the first intermission of the book of Revelation, we encounter God's peace for us in troubled times. There is the trouble, the great tribulation and trouble 
in the days to come. But the lesson, the application of these things is for us as well. We ourselves are living in troubled times. We ourselves, we ourselves are living in days when we need the comfort that God has to give us. We see the evil in the world around us. We see the danger. And God has given this confidence to those described in chapter 7 and to us as well. The same God who knows the number of his own is the same God who has called us to salvation. The same God who has promised to those who endure persecution and martyrdom that he will wipe every tear from their eyes is the same God who promises us that he will forever make his dwelling among us. Revelation 7 is that great moment of rest and peace and encouragement in the midst of God's judgment being poured out on this world. And in fact, the rest that is described in this chapter is the rest which we must bring to a troubled world. This is almost a gospel message in the midst of Revelation. This rest is what is missing in the lives of the world today. The question we take to the world is the proclamation that the judgment of God is certainly coming. And we make sure they hear the question, who is able to stand? And we provide the answer. Those who are sealed in the name of God and those who are clothed with the white robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. Let's go forth and proclaim these things boldly. Our Father, we are humbled as we hear the things of Revelation chapter 7. We know that the difficulties of this life are the burden that falls upon us. But Father, we understand that you have given us the great robes of righteousness. Father, you have made us clean, washed us white in the blood of the Lamb. Father, we thank you for what we see here, what we overhear along with John, what he invites us to see as he says, and behold, I saw. Father, teach us the wonder of the angels. Teach us the peace of being sealed by you. Father, make us those who are capable of boldly giving hope to this world that there is escape from the coming judgment. Father, even as the chapters ahead await us, even as the judgment is going to be poured out, even as your enemies will be judged, help us to always remember that you have saved us to continue singing in our hearts with praise to you the salvation which you have accomplished for us. Father, help us to live in anticipation, even though in the present moment, help us even look forward with expectation to the day when we will be with you, when you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Father, help us to savor the sun as we meditate on these things in the days to come. We pray all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus.